You may be seated. Who was Caiaphas? Jesus comes face to face with this man, probably for the first time in our passage this morning. He was the high priest of the Jews, appointed to that office in the year 18, and he would be removed from that office in the year 36 or 37. So he was high priest during all the years of Jesus' public ministry and through the first few years of the church's growth. He held the office of high priest longer than any other man during the first century. His predecessor was called Annas, who appears in the New Testament a few times as well. Annas was his father-in-law. Now, notice that I said Caiaphas was appointed to the office of high priest. He was appointed by the Roman governor who came before Pilate. And interestingly, Caiaphas was removed from office about the same time that Pilate was removed from his office. Annas represents a significant corruption of the office of high priest. No longer were the Jewish leaders attending to dissent from Aaron. No longer was the office held for life as laid out in the Mosaic law. The office of high priest had become a matter of plain political corruption. Annas essentially bribed his way into the office and his family would dominate the high priesthood for almost the entire first century. Caiaphas married one of Annas' daughters, and Annas ensured that Caiaphas could hold the office. After Caiaphas was removed from office, Annas' five other sons and one of his grandsons would function as high priest all the way through the destruction of the temple. Though Caiaphas is the official high priest during Jesus' ministry, Annas remained very influential so much so that the New Testament writers sometimes refer to Annas as the high priest. Perhaps it's similar to how we still refer to past presidents by their title, even after their term has long ended. In fact, though Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not mention it, after his arrest, Jesus is taken first to see Annas. John 18 tells us about this initial interrogation. Before we look at the details to sketch in the full picture of Jesus' arraignment, I want to consider a larger profile of Caiaphas, but I'm not merely interested in historical or biographical information. I want us to understand how the scriptures portray Caiaphas from a few different theological angles. This will enable us to see the richer significance of Jesus' interaction with him. Recall some of the features of the Jewish high priesthood. What wonderful privileges Caiaphas had. He alone would have been entering into the Holy of Holies in the temple to offer for the people of Israel the animal sacrifices that would wipe their slate for the previous year clean on the Day of Atonement. It was his primary responsibility to ensure that the Mosaic Covenant was being taught faithfully to all of God's people. He was considered to be the mediator between God and the people of Israel. He would have been involved in offering most of the sacrifices at the temple. 
He alone got to wear the ephod with the 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes of Israel before God. He alone wore the turban with the golden plate engraved with the phrase, Holy to Yahweh. As far as we know, Caiaphas discharged all of these duties regularly and faithfully. But the New Testament characterizes Caiaphas very differently. Near the beginning of Passover week, shortly after Jesus restored Lazarus to life, John's gospel informs us that the intent to murder Jesus came straight from the top, from the high priest's lips. John eleven forty seven to 53 provides the account. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the council which will feature in our passage this morning, and said, what are we to do? I know, I know what you should do. Believe in him and repent of all this madness. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, probably meaning the temple specifically, and our nation. And in one sense, they're right. Multitudes will believe in him. And in about 40 years, the Romans will indeed destroy the temple and exile the people. But one of them, Caiaphas who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, pompous and arrogant, isn't he? Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. At least, he didn't mean what John means by those words. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John here refers to the elect among the Jews and the Gentiles who will all be brought together in one in the church. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It might also be important at this point to recall that both Annas and Caiaphas and most of the priests were Sadducees. They don't believe in resurrection of any kind. So hearing that Lazarus died and is now alive again doesn't compute for them. They're not impressed by that. They're disturbed by that. So the Sadducees also aren't anticipating the coming of any kind of divine Messiah in any way. Caiaphas, in particular, shows himself to be a secular, politically motivated, power-hungry man. But it's the more subtle hints that show up in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 26 that paint Caiaphas in even darker colors. By alluding to certain Old Testament verses, Matthew and Jesus shape our understanding of what's happening here. Though we haven't read the whole passage yet, I'm going to point out certain details here ahead of time that are going to help us read the story in its larger biblical context in order to properly understand the theological significance of what's unfolding here. First, in Matthew 26, 57, we read that Jesus is taken to Caiaphas where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, that word gathered makes plain sense to describe simply what they had done. It's not the only word Matthew could have used to describe the situation, but it's pretty typical I simply noticed that Mark, describing this account, used a different word. Mark says they came together in Mark 14, 53. Why did Matthew use a different word? Possibly he intends us to notice a connection with Psalm 2. 
which begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Thus, I think Matthew wants us to see Caiaphas, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews, as here representing the pagan nations who have plotted, the worldly rulers who have gathered together against the Lord and against His Messiah in order to rebel and reject their authority over them. The Greek version of Psalm 2.2 uses the same word Matthew uses here. Psalm 2 goes on to describe how Yahweh laughs at their attempt to overturn His plans. And then He announces in His wrath that He has set His King on Zion. Jesus will be exalted to His throne through the cross. A second connection to observe comes with Caiaphas' direct question to Jesus in verse 63. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's questioning if Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also questioning if Jesus is the Son of God. We'll talk more about what he means by this question when we get there, but recall another in the Gospel of Matthew who directed such a questioning if statement to Jesus. The early church leader Origen explains the connection clearly. He wrote, But the high priest did sin in laying a snare for Jesus, imitating his father, who twice asked the Savior, If thou be the Son of God. Hence, one might rightly say that to doubt concerning the Son of God, whether Christ be he, is the work of the devil. Yes, Caiaphas is here pitched as an offspring of the serpent, utilizing the very words of Satan in the wilderness as he tempted Jesus those three awful times. And the third feature of our passage comes in its climax, Jesus' confession in verse 64, when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven. He is again identifying himself as the figure Daniel saw in his vision. I'll remind you of those verses yet again. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If Jesus is the Son of Man, Daniel saw in his vision, the human who is welcomed to approach the throne of God in heaven in order to receive universal authority and establish God's kingdom on the earth, then where does that put Caiaphas, the chief priests, and the elders of the Jews? That puts them as agents of the fourth beast with the ten horns and the little horn in Daniel's vision. The Jewish leaders are allied with the fourth beast, which represented the Roman Empire in Daniel's vision. And as the story of Jesus' passion continues, we will see how the Jewish leaders partner with the Roman authorities in their opposition against Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we'll see the persecution of the church being driven primarily by the Jewish leaders with some reinforcement from Roman authorities, fitting the details of Daniel's vision very appropriately. Thus, our passage this morning contains more than a mere interrogation of Jesus as part of the story of his death. 
we are seeing a skirmish in the war of the ages. The offspring of the serpent are expressing their ongoing hostility against the offspring of Eve. Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jews, will employ the methods of the serpent as he seeks to do the will of his father, the devil, all while claiming to uphold God's law, all while claiming to represent God's people. As we prepare to unpack this passage, let me summarize the sequence of events that are about to unfold. But first, we need to clear up some terminology. This passage has often been referred to as the Jewish trial of Jesus, but I don't think the word trial fits what's being described. I've already used the term interrogation as well as the legal term arraignment, and those are closer to what's being described. Many, many students of scripture have spent inordinate amounts of time and space in commentaries and books highlighting all of the supposed irregularities that we see in this passage. But those irregularities are based on assuming that this is a formal trial and that the procedures they were supposed to follow are the same procedures recorded a couple hundred years later in the Mishnah. One of the many problems with this procedure is that the Mishnah records rabbinic policies and traditions, and those traditions are decidedly Pharisaic focused particularly on circumstances that carried on after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The Sadducees are in charge here, and we must not assume they do things the same way the Pharisees would do them. Jesus' death is a travesty of injustice from a human vantage point. There is no trial. There is no due process. In fact, we'll see at the end of it all in a few weeks, there is no verdict pronounced, or there is a verdict But the sentence doesn't match the verdict that's pronounced. The chief priests and the elders of the Jews are seeking to have Jesus executed. That is their goal. The proceedings we're about to read reflect the Jewish leadership's efforts to secure an accusation that they can bring to Pilate so that the Roman authorities might have sufficient cause to execute Jesus. In the verses we read from John 11, the Jewish leaders had already decided what they were going to do. And Caiaphas was the leading voice. They agreed that Jesus was a false prophet who could potentially lead the people astray. Therefore, he deserves to be executed. They agreed that Jesus was a threat to their political power. And they agreed that his popularity could develop into a situation that would bring unwanted Roman hostility, such that they might destroy the temple and destroy the nation. Therefore, they agreed before Passover week began, that Jesus must die. So, the historical sequence seems to be the following. After Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, sometime after midnight, he was taken to the palace or headquarters of the high priest, very near the temple. Annas and Caiaphas would have both resided at this location, at a relatively large palace or mansion, where the two men and their families could occupy separate parts of the house. Judas and the arresting mob had surely been instructed to bring Jesus there. Thus, Jesus is brought before Annas, according to John 18. In John 18, verses 19 to 23, you can read the questions Annas asked Jesus and how Jesus responded to those questions. Annas didn't seem to get anything useful out of Jesus, so he sent him to Caiaphas in the other part of the house. While Annas was interrogating Jesus... Caiaphas was preparing the Sanhedrin to interrogate Jesus further. (coughs) They set up a plan 
and began pursuing witnesses. All this is happening in what we would call the middle of the night, somewhere around 2 o'clock in the morning. People are being awakened from sleep to come to this assembly. Then the encounter we're reading about here in Matthew 26 unfolds. Afterward, at dawn, a fuller body of the Sanhedrin will make their official recommendation. This is the closest thing we get to a Jewish trial. Luke records the details in Luke 22, verses 66 to 71. And it sounds like, from that passage, that they repeated some of what they had done earlier in this passage in order to get a proper, voted-on accusation to present to Pilate. Then, Jesus would have been escorted to Pilate, who then sent him to Herod, who then sent him back to Pilate. And all this is unfolding between 2 a.m. and 9 a.m. when Jesus will be nailed to a cross. So let's begin looking at the details of our passage. Consider Matthew 26, verses 57 and 58, where we see Peter, the witness. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Peter had run away with the other ten disciples, but he seems to have turned around. While the others continued to scatter into hiding, Peter turns back quickly enough to see where the mob was headed. So... From a distance, he followed. John 18, 15 indicates that another disciple, who is not named, went with Peter. And this other disciple had some kind of connection with either Annas or Caiaphas, so that this other disciple was allowed to come all the way into the house with Jesus. Most folks equate this other disciple with the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is almost assuredly John, the son of Zebedee. However, it may be significant that this disciple is not described with that phrase in John 18, whom Jesus loved. We may have some other disciple, not one of the twelve, who gains access. John, the son of Zebedee, was a Galilean fisherman just like Peter. So it's hard to see why he would not have been accosted the way Peter was by the servants milling around. In any case, Matthew focuses on Peter. This remark is merely parenthetical to set up Peter's denials of Jesus coming up in verses 69 to 75. Peter is indeed a witness to the interrogation of Jesus, probably before both Annas and Caiaphas. It's while Jesus is being questioned by the chief priests. It's while the false witnesses are giving their false testimony that Peter is being questioned and that Peter is giving his false testimony. Luke even indicates that Peter is close enough that Jesus can look directly at him when the rooster crows. Peter is a witness, but not a faithful and true witness. Thus, Jesus is brought before Caiaphas, and the scribes and elders have gathered together. They have taken counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, as Psalm 2 had prophetically described. Peter is in the courtyard, sitting with the servants and attendants. He's with the support staff of the high priest. But just a bit earlier, he couldn't be bothered to remain with his Savior. These are probably not guards or soldiers. The ones he's sitting with probably weren't part of the arrest party that had been sent to the garden. Peter wants to see the end, the outcome. He's sneaking around out here, lurking on the margins, wanting to know how things are going to turn out. In the next paragraph, we'll see that Peter was very much in the wrong place 
at the wrong time, but he too will fulfill his master's prophecy. In fact, Matthew may also hint that Peter is fulfilling biblical prophecy right now. When he describes Peter as following him at a distance, he uses a phrase that may be borrowed from Psalm 38:11, where David had lamented, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off at a distance. But in verses 59 to 61 in Matthew 26, the parade of false witnesses enters. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The whole council could suggest the entire 71-member Sanhedrin that functioned as the judicial and governing body in Jerusalem for the nation of Israel, under Rome's supervision, of course. However, it's likely that this is a much smaller group. Later, Luke informs us about Joseph of Arimathea, who did not agree with the Sanhedrin's decision to have Jesus executed. And Matthew refers to him as a disciple of Jesus. It may be that Joseph was absent from these proceedings. In fact, the Sanhedrin only required 23 members for a quorum. When it came time to vote, the high priest was the tie-breaking vote. All that Matthew may intend with the phrase is that they had enough representatives from the Sanhedrin to do what they had set out to do. Matthew tells us that these upholders of justice in Israel were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Even from three years of essentially spying on Jesus, as well as popular rumors about his activities, they had no hard evidence that could solidify an accusation to present to the Roman authorities. So they're looking for anything, it doesn't even need to be true, that could justify a guilty verdict in a Roman court. Ironically, of course, they're seeking to incriminate an innocent man, a righteous man, through methods that break the Mosaic law. The biblical penalty for false testimony in a case where the death penalty was an option for punishment was execution, according to Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 19. So what happens when the judges are the ones pursuing false witnesses? Interestingly, the Jewish leaders were not seeking to fabricate the evidence, They didn't get two false witnesses together and tell them what to say so that their testimony would match up. So it may be that they weren't specifically looking for false testimony, false witnesses. Rather, they were looking for any testimony of any two witnesses that would agree without caring to investigate the truthfulness of the charges, without giving Jesus the opportunity to provide witnesses for his defense that could contradict the charges. But even that wasn't working. Matthew says many false witnesses came forward, yet they couldn't agree, or they were not providing the kinds of testimony that could be presented to the Roman authorities for a sentence of death. Remember, that is what they're after. However, finally, two men come forward with an accusation that gets close to something that Pilate might care enough about to hear. Matthew quotes their testimony as, "'This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days.'" Interestingly, Mark puts it this way in Mark fourteen fifty eight, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. 
But then Mark adds, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. There's a difference between saying you are able to destroy the temple and that you are going to destroy the temple. This might seem to be a fine point, but it could weaken the case before Pilate if Jesus merely claimed the ability to do this, and not, but not the intention to carry it out. Plus, their testimony does not agree closely enough that it would be considered the valid, agreeing testimony of two witnesses. Caiaphas is going to react to this testimony. He recognizes that this is close to a claim that could threaten the temple. The claim is perhaps close to claiming that Jesus has the power of God. To threaten to destroy a temple in the ancient world, even amongst the Romans, would have been taken as a serious threat that could upend the social order and potentially bring down the wrath of the God to whom the temple belongs. But it's not quite enough. So Caiaphas stands and interrogates Jesus directly. Here we see the silent Savior refusing to cooperate at this moment. Look at verses 62 and 63. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Caiaphas is outraged that Jesus is not rising to his own defense. Part of Caiaphas' desire might have been to see Jesus incriminate himself in replying to the testimony of these false witnesses. However, Jesus won't take the bait. Caiaphas expresses some frustration here. Literally, his question could be translated, do you answer nothing to what these men are testifying? But of course, Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The high priest can see that he's getting nowhere. The sun will rise soon. Time is running out. Surely he would have liked to have disposed of Jesus before the Passover Sabbath. Thus, he needs to have a prepared, formal accusation ready to deliver to Pilate as soon as possible. So he pulls his ace, his secret weapon. He'll force Jesus to take an oath. We would wonder if he ever heard about how Jesus has taught people to think about oaths. And in Matthew, as Pastor Doug O'Donnell observes, only the bad guys take oaths. Nevertheless, here, Jesus shows himself to be what he is called in the book of Revelation, the true witness. See how he testifies to the truth about himself. He doesn't plead the fifth, even though something like that was available to him as an option in this setting. Look at the rest of verse 63 and on into verse 64. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God... Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh Uh-oh. The silent Savior speaks, and what he says changes everything. As Jesus had taught in the Kingdom Life Discourse, Sermon on the Mount, his followers shouldn't take oaths. However, there was a context for that prohibition, and he does not intend to prohibit the possibility that an authority figure might legitimately put you under oath. Nevertheless, as Pastor Doug O'Donnell puts it, Jesus needs no oath to tell the truth. 
Oaths are only for liars or potential liars. Caiaphas gets direct here, and he words his question very well to get Jesus to admit to something that would be upsetting to the Roman authorities. If Jesus claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, then he is claiming to be the king of Israel. But Caesar is the king of Israel. His name at this time was Tiberius. Herod may have wanted that title, king of the Jews, but the true king of Israel was Tiberius Caesar Augustus. Jesus' messiahship would be viewed as a rival, someone who might seek to lead Israel in a national revolution to break free of Roman rule. Caiaphas further asks Jesus to admit whether he owns the title of Son of God. Now, we have to be careful here. Caiaphas is not asking anything different. Son of God was a legitimate title for the king of Israel. Thus, he's not asking if Jesus claims to be divine or claims to be the eternal Son of God. Back in Psalm 2, David had reflected on this reality, and at a basic level, he is reflecting on his own identity, David's own identity, as God's son. In Psalm 2-7, famously, we read, I will tell of the decree Yahweh said to me, David, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Don't let the capital S fool you. David is writing about himself and the day he was anointed as king of Israel. He's also writing about the Messiah in the future. But it starts with him and points forward beyond him as well. Matthew began his gospel, remember, with a stylized genealogy that pressed this very point for Jesus. He is the son of David, which makes him the royal son of God. That's all Caiaphas is asking Jesus to admit to at this point. However, Jesus is going to give him more than he bargained for in his response. Initially, Jesus responds with the cryptic, you have said so. He utilized this phrase in response to Judas, who disingenuously asked him if he was the betrayer. And he will again utilize this phrase in response to Pilate, when he will ask him, are you the king of the Jews? There, with Pilate, he will give no further elaboration. But here, in responding this way, he gives Caiaphas a yes and no answer. Commentator Dale Bruner paraphrases Jesus' point in this response. Basically, Jesus is saying, those are your words. They would not be mine. I would have put it differently. Or, those are your words, and the words are right, but your ideas about the meanings of those words are not right. If Jesus had stopped speaking right there, he would have thoroughly disappointed Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. However, he's got something to say. He begins with the words, but I tell you. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the Son of God, but He is both of these in ways that go way beyond what Caiaphas was thinking. The you is plural here and for the rest of the verse. The Sanhedrin has had their witnesses. Now Jesus brings two witnesses in His reply, Daniel and David. He combines two Old Testament verses, Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110.1. These two witnesses agree. And Jesus indicates clearly that Daniel and David were testifying about him. Look again at these words from verse 64. 
But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. First, Jesus utilizes a timing phrase, from now on. He is speaking of something that is about to happen very soon after the conclusion of these proceedings. He is speaking of what is going to happen after his crucifixion. What will happen? You will see. The members of the Sanhedrin are going to see something. Now, the word for see here could indicate that he is referring to something that they will perceive, not necessarily something they are going to literally see with their literal eyeballs. What are they going to perceive or recognize? He splices together these two Old Testament references. He takes the figure of the Son of Man from Daniel 7.13. As we looked at earlier, Daniel had seen a vision of God sitting on his throne, and this one like a Son of Man, a human figure, in contrast to the beasts that represented wicked human kingdoms in history. But this human figure approaches God in heaven, on His throne, riding on the clouds. But instead of immediately describing the Son of Man as coming on the clouds, He inserts an allusion to Psalm 110.1, which has David speaking of one who sits at the right hand of God. Jesus had brought this verse into debate with the Jewish leaders in the temple just a couple of days before this, asking them how David could refer to his descendant as being his Lord. Psalm 110.1 says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The psalm goes on to identify this Lord of David as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Indeed, the author of Hebrews makes much of this verse, applying it to Jesus, showing that Jesus is the true and final high priest for God's people. Thus, in this room, at this moment, in Matthew 26, there are two high priests standing there. Caiaphas, illegitimately appointed, willing to break God's law to have a righteous man murdered, and Jesus, faithful over God's house as a son Tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Able to sympathize with the weaknesses of His people. The Son of God, made perfect forever. Who offered Himself to God without blemish. The final sacrifice accepted for atonement for all who will trust Him. The way Jesus has combined these two Old Testament verses is important to observe. Look at them again. As I said a moment ago, He begins by referring to Daniel 7.13 with the reference to the Son of Man. And then he inserts the reference to Psalm 110.1 before he goes back to referring to Daniel 7.13. This is a kind of chiasm, or we could say it as Daniel 7.13 is bracketing around a reference to Psalm 110.1. What this means is he is not viewing these actions in a particular sequence. He is not saying that the sitting comes before the coming, or vice versa. In fact, the tense of the verbs here suggests that the sitting and the coming happen at the same time. So the question we need to ask is, how can he be sitting at the right hand of God at the same time as coming on the clouds of heaven? What does it mean? Perhaps some of you will remember our study of cherubim during Christmas last year. The vision of the prophet Ezekiel depicted the glory of Yahweh being transported out of the Jerusalem temple. His glory was sitting on a throne, on a platform, carried by cherubim. 
Thus, we discussed how what was being described was a chariot throne, a mobile throne, thus sitting while moving. Now, this background is important to remember here as well, because like Ezekiel's vision, where the glory of Yahweh abandoned the temple and the city of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., before the Babylonians invaded the city to destroy it and flatten the temple. None of the inhabitants of Jerusalem saw Yahweh's glory literally evacuating the temple. Only Ezekiel, who was already in Babylon, received a vision describing to him what had happened. This was so that he, the prophet, could explain to the people in exile why and how the temple had been destroyed. It was destroyed because it was an act of God's judgment against their rebellion and idolatry. And the Babylonians could successfully invade Jerusalem, slaughter the masses, and burn down the temple because Yahweh wasn't there. His glory had left and no longer provided protection for the temple. Ezekiel could explain that because of the vision he received from the Lord. So here... The Jewish leaders will see Jesus sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds, meaning they will see Jesus exalted to the throne chariot of God as the figure identified in Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. They will not literally see this, and they will not see this in a vision like Ezekiel did. They will literally see the effects of that reality, just as the Jews saw the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the temple with their eyeballs. Jesus will literally ascend to heaven through the clouds. He will sit down at the right hand of God. I'm not sure if that's intended literally or not. He shares the throne of God at His right hand and the power of God. That's the point. He will be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and on earth will be given to Him. Once that literally happens, He in heaven... Several things will unfold on earth. First, the enthroned Son of Man will send the Holy Spirit to begin dwelling in the tra- and transforming His people on the earth. Second, the church will extend the gospel to the nations. Third, the Romans will indeed destroy Jerusalem and the temple once again. All of these things the Jewish leaders will see with their eyeballs. And what they should conclude What they should deduce from that is that these things are happening because Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and He really was righteous, and He really has been vindicated and exalted. Everything He prophesied has come to pass. They will see that with their eyeballs. Some of the priests will even see some of those things and believe the gospel, according to the book of Acts. And with Daniel 7 on the table, his role as the Son of Man should be seen as him being given authority to judge. Thus, Caiaphas stands up as the chief judge in this setting, but the one in chains before him is and will be his final judge. Caiaphas will one day stand before Jesus, and he will be sentenced to a much worse fate than even crucifixion. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell says, he claims to be the undisputed King Messiah and sovereign judge of the world. And thus, 
the one to whom this council will give an account for every reckless word, violent action, and foolish decision. In verses 65 to 68, we get Caiaphas' response to these words, which leads to the formal accusation that can then be manipulated in various ways to convince Pilate to execute Jesus. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Regarding the tearing of the high priest's robes, I'll quote commentator Dan Doriani. He writes, The tearing of garments signifies great grief. But at some level, the priest has to be glad, since Jesus has incriminated himself in terms well-suited to the authorities' goals. When Jesus confesses himself to be the Christ, he invites the charge of sedition. Any Messiah could be a rival to the emperor. So Jesus is liable to death by Roman law. By asking Jesus if he claimed to be the messianic son of God, Caiaphas was not looking for Jesus to commit blasphemy. If he could get Jesus to claim to be Messiah, then he could present him to Pilate as a rival king who does not submit to Caesar. Matthew will not tell us what the chief priests say to Pilate, but Luke does and John does. In Luke 23.2, the Sanhedrin presents their accusation formally to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That will prompt Pilate to interrogate Jesus. But Pilate's investigation does not verify their accusation. So after several rounds of investigation between Pilate and Herod, and after Pilate had Jesus flogged, Pilate remains resistant of convicting Jesus of a capital offense. Thus, John's gospel reports the Jewish leader's final response to Pilate in John 19.7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. With Jesus' application of Psalm 110.1 to himself, Caiaphas has realized that he claimed to be the eternal Son of God, something more horrifying than merely claiming to be the rightful king of Israel descended from David, though he is that too. That he made himself the Son of God fits in line with other places in John's Gospel where Jesus seems to claim equality with God. Then after another round of interrogation, Pilate still wants to set Jesus free. And then we read in John nineteen twelve, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate then presented Jesus to the Jewish onlookers, and he asked them all, Shall I crucify your king? Then according to John 19, 15, the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. I've jumped ahead in the story simply to remind us of what the outcome of Jesus' arraignment really was. Caiaphas is shocked out of his senses by Jesus' reply. It certainly provided him with the grounds he needed to accuse Jesus before Pilate, but it went much further. To claim to be the Messiah was not blasphemy. Caiaphas was looking for evidence that Jesus had, at some point in the past, claimed to be the Messiah or the Son of God, 
But even the false witnesses couldn't support such a charge. Jesus had carefully avoided those particular titles most of the time during his ministry, preferring the much more ambiguous Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man hundreds of times in public, most of the time causing no disturbance among the Jews who heard him. But here, he connects that title with the phrase, coming on the clouds, which lets Caiaphas know that he was referring to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Now, Caiaphas, as a Sadducee, would not have considered Daniel to be Scripture since Sadducees were known to only hold that the books of Moses were Scripture. But he certainly would have understood that many Jews did consider Daniel to be Scripture. And there were some Pharisees among the Sanhedrin who would have recognized the allusion. Then to add Psalm 110 makes Jesus' claim really, really clear. He is not claiming to be merely a human Messiah. He is claiming to be the one who is to share the throne of God the one who is granted universal authority over God's kingdom, and the one who will judge the world. This is blasphemy from the Jewish point of view, assuming it's not true. But of course, from our vantage point, Caiaphas has blasphemed. Luke even says as much. In Luke twenty-two sixty-five, he writes, And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. The false witnesses, in their wildest imaginations, could never have come up with such an accusation. Jesus serves himself up on a platter. He reveals his identity in a way that was unmistakable. He tells the truth about himself, as he had done repeatedly throughout his ministry. But he is clearer here than anywhere else. By suggesting that he himself would be sitting at God's right hand, he was claiming something that they could not imagine an ordinary human being claiming, much less a Galilean peasant whose teachings had constantly irritated the current experts of the Mosaic law. Thus, back in Matthew twenty-six sixty-six, Caiaphas asks the Sanhedrin to pronounce their assessment. Our English Bibles make it sound like he's asking for their decision or verdict or judgment, but all he says literally is, how does it seem to you? They agree he is worthy of death drawing on the punishment laid out for blasphemy in Leviticus 24.16. His blasphemy in their very ears provides all the evidence that they need that he really does deserve to die. That's all they needed. They couldn't get twofold eyewitness testimony that agreed about something he had said or done during his ministry that deserved the death penalty. But Jesus says the very words they needed to hear. Now they, now they are certain he deserves death. So they're going to ensure that he gets what he deserves. We already looked at how they manipulate Pilate into going through with it, even though he doesn't ever see the evidence that supports the death penalty for Jesus. Out of their revulsion over what they just heard, refusing to believe that he could possibly be telling the truth, they begin to treat him shamefully. These religious leaders, these wealthy aristocrats, sink down to the level of a street gang, spitting in Jesus' face, punching and slapping him repeatedly. When they strike him on the right cheek, he turns to them his left also, just as he taught us to do. Ultimately, they view him as a false prophet, and they challenge him in mockery to prophesy by identifying his assailants by name. Mark tells us that they blindfolded him for this. 
Ironically, all this mistreatment fulfilled biblical prophecy. Isaiah sang about the servant who would suffer, the servant whose suffering would redeem Israel and the nations. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, we read the servant's words, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. As one writer observes, they wouldn't think of spitting on Caiaphas's floor, but they thought nothing of spitting in Jesus's face. If he refuses to identify who struck him, they'll be reinforced in believing that he is a false prophet and that he could not be the Messiah. There is a line in a messianic prophecy, Isaiah 11.3, that says that the spirit-empowered Messiah will not judge by what his eyes see. So they're testing him to see if he can judge who struck him without seeing who struck him. Ironically, right at this very moment, Jesus' prophecy about Peter's denials is being fulfilled right outside the window. This is the example Jesus has left for us. Peter, who witnessed all of this, though perhaps distracted in the midst of his denials, would later write in 1 Peter 2, 21-23, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When the Apostle Paul later tells us to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, this is part of what that might look like. In the face of insults, abuse, and mockery, will we follow our Savior in refusing to revile, to return evil for evil? He has called us to this. It seems like some of us are very, very quick to revile those who stand against us. Even in the face of little direct persecution and abuse, we're quick to say very nasty things about those who oppose Christianity, whether they be cultural influencers or government officials. If we're speaking that way, even before they come at us with the beatings, how can we expect to endure persecution in a way that honors Jesus when it comes to that? Our final application from this passage comes in the concluding words of Psalm 2. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Have you bowed in allegiance and submission to the Lord of all? He died on the cross, condemned as a criminal, though He never committed any crime though he never committed any form of sin. He died to pay the penalty for sinners. Now he has risen from the dead, and he is sitting at the right hand of God, enthroned forevermore as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will return to bring judgment, wrathful judgment, against all who refuse to take refuge in him. Yes, he is the judge. Yes, His wrath is terrible. And yes, He's the only one who can save us.
He has made it clear who he is, and he has been vindicated. He told the truth. He was and remains the true witness. God raised him from the dead to vindicate him. What more proof do you need? Would you pray with me? Our Father, you have given us a great salvation. We marvel at the impact and the outflow of Jesus' suffering. Sometimes it's hard to look closely at it, to see what he went through as a man, as the gospel writers have told us in such detail. Our instincts for justice are good and right, and to see him undergoing such human injustice should outrage us. But then we quickly remember that this is the way. This was the prophesied path to bring us salvation. And we praise you. We praise Jesus, our Savior, that he was willing to go through all of this, to endure every bit of it in our place. And we are reminded that this is what we deserved. We deserve to be the victims of injustice. We deserve to experience abuse and persecution and hostility and judgment forever and ever. He didn't deserve any of that. And so we worship you because you have made a way, the only way, that we could get out from under your rightful wrath because we are sinners. We deserve your judgment. And so we thank you that you, in your great love, made a way of escape. We thank you that you were willing to pay such a cost. We pray that we would be moved to submit to you, to obey you, to trust you in every area of our life because you've done this for us. Thank you for the great gift of our salvation. Thank you for the great gift of our Savior, the gift of your Son. Thank you for joining us with him by our faith. Help us to trust you practically and obey you regularly in our day-to-day life by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hang tight for a few announcements.